Okay, so as we all know, well, we're all here uh, to welcome Armando Bernstein, who's uh, certainly name precedes him. We are very, very honoured. Certainly, as Edra as Gehilla, and there's a very strong uptake. It just happened to be that six o'clock for some people, strangely enough, is not the best time. But Baruch Hashem still pulled in the crowd. People are very excited about it, and we really are excited to hear what Rav Emmanuel Bernstein has to say on the three weeks. <coughs> Thank you so much, uh, Josh. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be here in, uh, in, in Edgware. Uh, I was predominantly in Northwest London, uh, Hendon and Golders Green, and uh, something freed up. And uh, Edgware as a whole is a phenomenon. It's certainly different than it was when I was growing up. Uh, although I haven't checked the Edgware station uh, today. <laughs> So to share some words uh, with regards to the days that we're in, which we call the three weeks and <coughs> the nine days. And they're not easy days. And if they are, they should be. And there's an interesting <coughs> question that uh, I would like to raise. And that is, is it possible or appropriate to wish a person a, you know, a good three weeks? To have a good three weeks? To have a good nine days? Is it even possible to do the unthinkable and wish a person a, a good tishabah? I'm not saying that you should, but I think you can. Because the alternative is a bad three weeks, and a bad tish, a, nine days, and a bad tishabah. And what would that look like? It's, it's days that aren't used. If they're used properly, they're used well, and they're good. We often like to say that, and in fact the prophet says, the, the Nabi says, <coughs> that in the future, these days, 17th of Tammuz, 9th of Av, they will become Yomim Tovim. They will turn into good days. It happens to be that the 17th of Av Pardon me, the 17th of Tammuz and the 19th of Av, the 9th of Av, are already good days. They were originally Yomim Tovim. They became bad days, but originally their nature is that of Yomim Tovim. And the reason why is because the two greatest gifts that we received from HaKadosh Baruch Hu in this world are the Torah and the land of Israel. And the final installment of the giving of the Torah was meant to be the 17th of Tammuz. That's when we were meant to receive the Luchos. If they hadn't been broken, they would have been given. And that would have been the final stage of Matan Torah. It was programmed to be a day of celebration. The 9th of Av was the day that we were meant to have the spies come back and tell us that the land is amazing. Let's go. It was meant to be the day that initiated and launched our entry into the land. Which means that if these days were originally Yomim Tovim, and they have become, so to speak, hijacked to become days of tragedy, the goal is not to turn them into Yomim Tovim, the goal is to turn them back into Yomim Tovim. And how do we do that? So... I'd like to share a personal feeling about Tisha B'Av, and that is that Tisha B'Av doesn't really, nothing really works on Tisha B'Av. Uh, I don't work on Tisha B'Av. 
It's hard, you can't really function properly on Tisha B'Av. You can't really do anything right. Because you're not eating, you're not drinking, you have kinos, and you have to find out what they mean. You can't do anything else. It's not really a very successful day, I don't think. I wouldn't put it, put it, put it down as the day that I, that I succeeded most in anything, other than getting to the end. But what, what is the goal of a day like that, which is almost programmed for us to, to not succeed? What also struck me for a number of years is that more or less straight after Tisha B'Av, which means this year Tisha B'Av is going to be Thursday, and then two days later it's a Shabbos, and we call, we call it Shabbos Nachamu. What does Nachamu mean? All better. Everything's okay. It will be okay. And it's interesting because we, we like, it seems like we do our time in Tisha B'Av and then oh, it's, it's all going to be okay. Based on what? If, if, if Tisha B'Av doesn't work and it doesn't bring Mashiach, which what we call Tisha B'Av is working, so why two days later do we say, oh, so everything's going to be all right? Well, well that didn't work. It's very different, for example, if we compare it with another time of the year. After Yom Kippur, we have Sukkot. Sukkot is a celebration of Yom Kippur because you assume that Yom Kippur worked, that you got your kapara. So if the goal of Yom Kippur is to get kapara, so then, <coughs> and you assume you did, you can celebrate a few days later. But if the goal of Tisha B'Av is to bring the geula, and it didn't, so then it seems almost like delusional to say, oh, we're into Nachamu, and it's all going to be okay. So what's the progression here? How does it work? <coughs> so I think, and it's a bit of a jarring uh, idea, but nonetheless, throughout the year, it's fair to say, we try and succeed. If we, if we wish to succeed, that's, that's our goal. We're trying to succeed, and, and hopefully we do. I think it's correct to say that in one day of the year, we are not meant to succeed. Because we have to stop succeeding. Because that success is actually stopping us from moving forward. Because the definition of success that we have throughout the course of the year is very limited. It's very constricted. And if, if we only ever succeed on those terms, we've actually failed. Because the broader definition, we never reach, and we don't even remember. If I would use a, 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 a marshal, again, it's a bit of a blunt marshal, but I think it, it illustrates the point. If you can imagine someone who has his map for success, it's all worked out. But his map for success sounds something like this. <coughs> he wants to make sure that he's in well-positioned in the queue for meals. He wants to be sure that, where, that his living accommodation has good lighting. He wants to be sure that he has a good place when they let them out once a day to exercise in the yard. And he wants to be sure that he's connected to the people that can get him what he needs. If he gets all of that, he's been 100% successful and he's a total failure because you're talking about someone who's in prison. And, and the map of success in that very constricted sense 
is not real success, and it's, it blocks his way from succeeding. Because he forgets about ever going free, because the more comfortable he makes his cell, the more settled he becomes there. For, from his point of view, he couldn't be doing better. But in reality, he couldn't be doing worse. And that's, <coughs> harsh as it is to say, that's us, wherever we are, wherever we live. Because the terms on which we're trying to succeed are not full terms of success. We're trying to make the best of a bad situation. Better still is to get a better situation. In other words, what we cannot afford to do is to let the walls of the gallus where we're in become our horizon beyond which we cannot see. And the irony of Tisha B'av and the irony of the three weeks and the nine days is that they're called Bein HaMitzari. They constrict you. But through constricting you, they allow you to have a broader vision. As long as you feel that everything is as it should be, so you only ever see as far as success in this realm. But as soon as things begin to close in, so then, so then you are forced to say, well, well, this is not a good situation, maybe I should look beyond it. So it's specifically the constriction of the Bena Mitzarim that broadens our horizons, if we let it. Because when, when does Geula come? Geula comes when we're not prepared to be in Golis anymore. As long as we have everything we need, so we, we forget to even want anything beyond that. Which means, and I'm going to be a bit lenient here, but I think it's... Uh, I think it's okay. When we define the definition of a, of a, a successful Tisha B'av, what's a successful Tisha B'av? I don't think it's a binary thing. A fully successful Tisha B'av obviously brings Mashiach. But if that doesn't happen, does that mean Tisha B'av is a failure? No, not necessarily. Because a partially successful Tisha B'av, even if it didn't succeed in bringing Mashiach, it succeeded in allowing us not to forget that we're in Golis. Not to forget it's this one day and we're not really doing very well because we're never really doing very well in the full sense of the word. And if that gets through to us on Tisha B'av, if we emerge from Tisha B'av with a, with a profound awareness of the fact that we, got, we want to try and do as best as we can in this setting, but our goals are for a better setting called redemption. That was a good Tisha B'Av. It's not good with a capital G, but it's good with a lowercase g. And moreover, if we did that, the next thing that should happen is to read the Haftoras of Nechama, of comfort. If we didn't go through Tisha B'Av, we might not even feel we need to hear about being comforted because we're comfortable. You can't accept comfort if you're comfortable. And therefore, <coughs> if Tisha B'Av succeeded at least in making us uncomfortable where we are, so then when we hear the Haftorahs over the course of the ensuing seven weeks, we hear and the Navi says, you'll be comforted, and we say, good. Because I need it. 
because I'm not okay here. Not really. And moreover, I would say, a good Tishabav should affect us every day of the year because the truth is that we have brachos in the Shemona Yisrei every day which are about redemption and the ingathering of the exiles and the building of Yerushalayim and the coming of the Mashiach and the restoring of the Beis HaMikdash. The, the thing about Tisha B'Av, and the truth is that the thing about every special day in the Jewish year, which has a theme, it's not that that theme is appropriate for that day, but not for other days. Every special day, the theme is emphasized. But it's a theme for every day. It's just it's the focus of this day. But it should almost pulsate from this day onto all the other days. On Pesach, we celebrate leaving Mitzrayim, but we talk about it every day but it pulsates on Seder night. And on Shavuos, we celebrate receiving the Torah, but we learn Torah every day, but it pulsates on, on Shavuos. And on Tisha B'Av, we remember that we're missing the Geula. We, we're forced to confront it. But that should then reverberate and resonate in the things that we say about this every day of the year, because it's easy to, to put them to the side of our, the corner of our eye, those brachas. If we would think about what are the brachas in the Shemona Yisrei that we focus on, well, Baruch Aleinu, obviously, because that's Parnassah, Rafa'inu, we hope to everyone as well, and we should hope to everyone as well, and Slachlanu, because we need forgiveness, or at least people that we know need forgiveness. And, <coughs> so, and those are the ones that, the, those are the here and now things that we know that we need. And what about Kibbutz Galias? Okay, very nice. Building Shalim, also very nice. And, but in other words, they should receive their due from the experience that we have on Tisha B'Av. It's very interesting that the Hebrew word for davening is lehitpalel, as we know. Lehitpalel, lehitpalel. Okay, but the English word for lehitpalel is not davening. Strictly speaking, the word palel means to think. Rav Hirsch says this, Rav Shem Shinnafal, Hirshim Parshas Vayera. Palel means to think. But Lehit Palel is a reflexive. It means to bring oneself to think. One of the primary ideas behind davening is not just to get what you want, but it's to know what you want or to know what you should want. It's to get yourself to think because otherwise you might forget. And that is never more true than with regards to the, the things that the Jewish people need. And really, I think Tisha B'Av is also a day where, where we need to get out of ourselves a little bit. Because it could be that we're doing okay, but maybe we've forgotten about the Jewish people. Jewish people are not doing okay. Not all of them. Not as a people. There's a lot of oppression. There's a lot of vilification. There's a lot of discrimination. The Jewish people can be can be accused of anything, as we know. It's really heartbreaking by people who are actually self-respecting professionals who could never, ever say anything like this about anyone else. But when it comes to the Jewish people, it's absolute hefkerus. You can say what you want. But how does that work? It can only work because the Jewish people are not rated as, as being a meaningfully existing people. So you can really say what you want, and it doesn't affect your credibility about any other real concerns. That's not good. 
the Jewish people are not in a good position. And I'm sure you just have to turn on the, the radio or whatever, you, whoever it is. BBC has a, has a reputation for this. But they're in competition with others for the very same things. CNN and all the... Russia Tavis. It's who can, who can push the envelope more about the Jewish people and still be considered a completely rational, normal being. And, and Tisha B'Av is a day where if, you, if we get out of ourselves and we think about the Jewish people generally, which we should do, and once again we remind ourselves that all of the brachos in Shemona are in the plural because they're about all of us, so then it should be easier for us to say, we're not, this is not okay, and, and we, we need to do better as a people. We need help. We need, we need the geula. So the concept of geula is a very national thing. But it's also a very private thing. Because the, the micro of being in exile takes place within the person. You know, there is a word which is, it's almost like the watchword for Tisha B'Av. It's the Sefer that we read on Tisha B'Av. It's called Eicha. And Eicha means uh, lamentations or alas or how or whatever it means. And there's an interesting medrash which says that the, uh, I mean, Eicha will not appear as a word until much later on, but the roots of Eicha are very early on. The roots of Eicha go literally back to the beginning, to Parshas Barishas. Because when Hashem appears to, or does, actually does not appear, but, but confronts Adam and Chava after having eaten from the Eitz Hadas, he appears to them and he, and he asks them this question, Ayeka, where are you? And Ayeka, says the Medrash, has exactly the same letters as Eicha. Aleph, Yud, Kaf, Hey. The original Eicha is that question, Ayeka. Now, statements like this need to be taken very carefully, need to be considered very carefully, because as much as they have the same letters, they're not the same word at all. We're not going to go into the intricacies of the, the, the Hebrew grammar of the matter right now. It's Sunday afternoon, and Jewish people have been through enough. But, but I mean, Eicha comes from the word Eich. It's, the He is added on, but it's Eich. Ayeka comes from the word Ayei. Right? The cup is because it's you. It's a suffix, it's you. So in the end, the letters are the same. But the, the two words are not the same. So why are they being pushed together? You see, the, the first Eicha is Ayeka. It isn't. But what is being said here? Adam and Chava, we go back to the, the very first, day one, literally day one, the very first sin. They were told not to eat from the uh, Eitz Hadas, the tree of knowledge, and they did. It's important to understand that they couldn't eat from that tree before leaving the garden. By which I mean as follows. If we would try and mock up a working definition of Ganeiden, we could say it's as follows. It's a tree, it's a, a garden where all the trees are very, very good, except for one in the middle, which is not good. 
That's a working definition. It's actually all we know. But that's the one they ate from. But you don't do something unless you think it's good for you. Which means that by the time Adam and Chava, or more correctly, Chava and Adam, uh, ate from, from, from the tree, they couldn't do so before redefining where they are. They had to see themselves as, a, as being in a place where none of the trees were any good for them, except for this one. Those two descriptions don't match. They're not describing the same place. And that's what we mean when we say that in order for them to eat from this tree, they had to leave the garden. And they did so without taking one step. Because their perception and their relationship with the, the uh, setting around them had completely changed. They're in a different place. Which brings us to Hashem's question to Adam, where he appears to him and says, Ayeka, where are you? What is, what is, what, Hashem doesn't know where Adam is. He knows. But Adam doesn't know where he is. And the, 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 the meaning behind that question is, Hashem says to Adam, where are you? Because you're not where I left you. Because the garden that I left you and you wouldn't have eaten from that tree, the garden that I left you and that tree is no good for you. But you ate from it, which means you see yourself as being in a place where that is good for you. That's a different place. Where is that place? Ayeka, where are you now? By the end of the day, Adam and Chav had been thrown out of Gan Eden. But it's important to realize that from a certain point of view, they'd already left. They'd already checked out so to speak, before eating from the tree. So this was just geography catching up with consciousness. And that ayeka really is the root of Eicha. Because Eicha, which laments the golos, golos begins in the mind. It starts with the way you see things, or the way you don't see things. Because if you don't see things right, you're not actually there. You're somewhere else, maybe in your own world, or as it says in Pirkei Avos, the three middos of Kina, Tava, and Kavod, all those terrible things, they can remove you from the world, placing you where? Somewhere else, in your own world, perhaps. And in fact, as we know, the very first Tisha B'Av was when the Miraculum came back, the spies came back, and they spread those reports about the land of Israel. And the punishment for that was 40 years in the wilderness. Where does 40 years come from? Torah says, for each day. Yom Lishana, Yom Lishana. Every day that they were in the land of Israel, and they were there for 40 days, 40 days became 40 years. <clears throat> Except there's just one problem. We have, we have a sense here of midah keneged midah, like for like, that the punishment fit the crime. But what's the crime? If anyone were to ask us, uh, what was the crime of the spies? I think we'd answer with confidence. So they slandered the land. They spoke Lashon Hara. So if you, want an, if you want the punishment to fit the crime, find out how long they spoke Lashon Hara for. And if they spoke Lashon Hara for 40 minutes... So then turn it into 40 of wherever you want. And if they spoke Lashonah for 40 hours, okay, also, we're looking at the wrong place. 
Because the 40 days, they didn't say anything wrong in the 40 days. They didn't say anything. So why are we looking there as the scene of the crime? Rabbi Shlomo Kluger says the reason why is because that was their crime. The scene of the crime is the land of Israel. What you see becomes what you say. And if you see correctly, you'll speak correctly. And if you see wrong, you'll speak wrong. Which means Lashon Hara, as funny as it <coughs> sounds, is actually not a problem. I know many people agree with me, but not for that reason. <laughs> but but, but Lashon Hara is not a problem. It's a symptom of a problem. You only say what you see. If the Miraglim, if the spies had only seen correctly those 40 days, they would have come back with a good report. But they saw incorrectly for whatever reason that drove them to do so. They had other ideas going on. It changed the way you look at things. Our, uh, what we bring to the situation, it changes the way that we, that, that we see things around us. Or as one Chacham put it, which really sums things up here, very often what's going on right in front of your eyes is not nearly as significant as what's going on right behind them. Because that's where the machine is that will give you your take on the whole situation. Which means the crime really was those 40 days where they were in a wonderful land and all they could see was bad. They're practically not in the land of Israel. Because they said this is a land that kills. But it doesn't. But they saw it. They must have been somewhere else. Or to put it slightly differently, the real tragedy of that first Tishabav, the real tragedy of what happened with the spies, is that they set out to view the land of Israel and they never got there. Because they spent 40 days effectively walking through some other place. And that's, that's godless in the making. It's a lot easier to be thrown out of a place if you never really got there in the first place. And this is, in a sense, each person's conceptual godless, where they're not really anywhere. They're certainly not where they are. And if we go back to that first verse in Eicha, and Eicha says, if you know the Pasuk, I mean, you've been through enough Tishabavs, or how does it say? Eicha Yashvabadad, how could it be the city sits alone? Ha'ira Basiyam, for so full of people, but now it's alone? Ha'isa Kamana. I think it's fair to say that the, the, the Pshat, which is devastating enough of that Pasuk, is it's comparing how it used to be and how it became. How can it be? Look at it now. It's, it's alone. It used to be full of people, and now, nothing. One of the great Bale Hadrush from the 1500s, Rabbi Azaria Feggio of Italy, he explains that the phrases in this Pasuk are not different time frames. They're all describing the same time. And that's the point. In other words, he looks at the city. How can it be, Yashvabata, the city's alone? Why is the city alone? Isn't it full of people? It is. And it's still alone. Ha'ira basiyam. Even when it was teeming with people. Ha'isa ka'amana. But, but there's no one there. Because everyone's in their own, with their own machinations and their own agendas and in their own world even. 
So the streets were full and the place was empty. And that really is the, which means that the first step towards Geula, aside from the aspiration towards Geula, is really within ourselves as well, is to, is to be where we are, to be sure that we're seeing things as we should see them, as they are, and not as we think they should be, or as we th- thought they might be, or we would like them to be, or how, they, how it suits us for them to be. And this brings us to what I think is, is, is an important idea with regards to, I think, a central concept about, about Tisha B'Av. The Gemara famously says that the, the, the first base of Mikdash was destroyed due to terrible Averas, the three big Averas, of Avodazara and Gilaraya, and Shri this, at the time of the second Beis HaMikdash, even if you read history, they also had significant uh, uh, problems. But the way the Gemara cuts to the heart of the matter and says, what was their issue? Sinas China. Baseless hatred. Where does baseless hate, hatred come from? Where does Sinas China come from? That's, it sounds like an interesting question. It also sounds like a, a, an impossible question. Because sinas literally means for no reason. So if it means for no reason, and then you ask, well, well, what's the reason? So you're not going to get very far. Someone will politely guide you back to the part which says chinam, which means there's no reason. But actually, there is a reason for sinas There's more than one reason, in fact. Why is it called sinas if there's a reason? Because it's not a real reason. It's not a good reason. But it seems like a good reason. No one does anything without a reason. So it's called tzchinam because it doesn't really exist. But, but, but what is it? Now, the Vilna Gaon reveals the, the, the matter here. If you've ever heard that Gemara which compares these two generations. Generation one, these three big Averis. Generation two, Sinas Chinam. I believe that's a well-known Gemara. What's not so well known, and sometimes we do ourselves a disservice because we stop the Gemara too early, is the final statement of the Gemara, which is so uh, shocking, it's probably that's the reason why we don't really talk about it. And that is, the Gemara says that the first generation, they were Rishoyim. They were Rishoyim. It calls them Rishoyim, which you're not allowed to do anymore, but this is back in the day when Rishoyim still existed, uh, before Matan Torah. So uh, now, of course, they've been deleted from the dictionary. So, so that's good. There's no more Rishoyim, so that's uh, it's helpful. Uh, I think everyone is uh, whatever they are. I think probably the, the term for today would be uh, satanically challenged or something like that. But... But... The Gemara said they were Risho- these the first generation were Rishoyim. Listen to this. If you never heard it, you won't believe it. But they had Bitochem. But they, but they trusted in Hashem, which is incredible because, because if they had Bitochem, why are they killing each other? And why are they doing Avodah Zarah and, and all of those things? Clearly something was lost in operational translation. But 
The Gemara says it. They had bitochen. Wow. That's a chiddush. It's a chiddush about that first generation. Rishoyim with bitochen. But actually, I think it's a bigger chiddush about the second generation. Because I think if that's, if that's the only thing the first generation had going for them, then the reason why the second generation, that is to say, again, the generation of the second destruction, had sinas chinam, is because they didn't have bitochen. That's where sinas chinam comes from. And, but why? Why? Why would you instantly dislike a person, like, almost like instinctively? or bear them ill will, or malice, or be suspicious of them. All they have to do is exist, and they're they're already in trouble. Where does that come from? It comes from from the notion, this kind of creeping notion that maybe they'll take something that's mine. Maybe they're a threat to me. Someone else is out there. After all, in front of us are limited, limited resources. Here's another person, another consumer. Maybe they'll take something that's mine. You know, when people get together at a kiddush around the table, there's, there's uh, like at after shul, sometimes it can be a bit of unease in the air because there's limited resources <laughs> and every additional predator <laughs> makes for additional competition. So, and sometimes instinct takes over. People are in their shadows clothes, so it's all very genteel. But before you look around, you can be discovering knees and elbows in places that you never knew existed. <laughs> As you, because it's that imena nili mili, who's, there's only one left and just three of us. And, it's, uh, and, that, and that's a mindset that, that one can carry through life, which means everyone, everyone that you meet is, 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 is other. It's interesting, when you sit down for a suda, everyone is the heart of of uh, benevolence and patience and grace because you know that within time you'll get, you'll get what's coming to you. It's not going to... There's enough for everyone. It's okay. It could be the very same people. And, and that's why we say if, one has a, if a person has a, has a healthy sense of bitochen, because we translate bitochen as trusted in Hashem, but what is bitochen if not a, a, simply a Jewish way of looking at the world, where you realize that things are being overseen. You have to, from on high, you have to act diligently and responsibly, etc. And you have to look after yourself, but ultimately it's all being overseen. Which means there's room for everyone. And it's Okay. What's very interesting about this idea, aside from the fact that it, it reveals the unrevealable, the reason behind Sinas Chinam, is that it shows just how, just how closely different categories of mitzvah are related. We're familiar with two categories of mitzvah, broadly. Um, uh, between man and God, between man and man, that's, that's a well-known two, two domains. And it's easy, we know they're both important, but it's easy to have a perspective of, you know, never the twain shall meet. But think about it. It doesn't get more between man and God than trusting God. It doesn't get more between man and man than baseless hatred. And lo and behold, they're joined at the hip. One is a product of the other. And moreover, go back to the sin of the Miraglim, of the spies. 
They cried and wailed. The people said, we can't go in, we can't go in. It, it's too difficult for us and they're too strong for us. Well, well, well too strong for whom? Too strong for Hashem? So, so, but why do, why do you think they're too strong? Because Hashem has been factored out of the equation. Somehow, it's just us going in. And if it's just us, they're too strong. The way the Gemara describes the roots of the original Tisha B'av is that Hashem said, you cried, you cried crying for nothing. So then you'll, you'll have what to cry about, if that's what you want. That's Tisha B'av. So it's very interesting because we, we have actually, in our discussion so far, met the word chinam twice. Chinam, for nothing. Where? Number one, sinas chinam, which is the cause of the destruction of the second base of Megdash. Number two, bechishachinam, the crying for nothing at the time of the miracle. But we should now realize that these two chinams are the same. They're the same china. They both come from exactly the same place. Firstly, the Miraglim, they cried over the notion of entering the land because they didn't factor Hashem into the equation, and if it's just us, we can never do it. But that's unnecessary, because why'd you take Hashem away? It's china. And why do you hate the other person? Because you took Hashem out of the equation, so it's just me, and he's in the way. It's the same china. There's a very interesting um, minhag in Kiddush Levana, which is, uh, takes place typically on Moshe Shabbos. If you've, if you've never said Kiddush Levana before, nothing could prepare you for it. It's got everything in it. It's like Halach Mania. It's got, it's got everything. And every time you look around, something else is happening. It's either Simon Tov or Mazel Tov, or Dabi Melech Yisrael, or Shalom Aleichem, when people are dancing, and it's, it's kaleidoscopic. But one of the things you do is you say Shalom Aleichem. Why? The Arizal says that we seem to be very uh, uh, upset that the moon is diminished. Right? We pray that the moon be restored. Why does it bother us so much? One would think we'd have enough problems aside from that. I've never met someone who was upset and when upon being asked, responded because the moon is in a diminished state. I wouldn't call it lunacy, but uh, that's not a priority for us. But we, but, but we pray for it because the diminishing of the moon is the first natural disaster in creation. It's the prototype for everything that goes wrong in creation. But how did it all begin? The moon said, it's either me or the sun. There's not enough room in the, in the galaxy or in the solar system for both of us. Well, it wasn't the solar system at that time. It was the solar lunar system. But there's not enough room for both of us. Two kings can't share the same crown. Where did the beginning of everything that goes wrong start? When one entity didn't see there's room enough for the one next to it. And everything, that was a downward spiral. So, 
What do we do? Once a month. One could try it more than once a month. But once a month, you turn, this day Rizal says, you turn to the person next to you and you say, Shalom Aleichem. What are you doing? You're recognizing that there's room for the person next to you. And in so doing, you are actually beginning to rectify the mistake of the moon. The moon moon says there's no room for the sun. It's got to be just me. And we might often also think that. But when we're opposite the moon, and we want everything to be diminished, we want everything to be restored, so what are we doing about it? It starts with something very simple, to say hello to the person next to you, to recognize there's room for them, there's space for them. It's a small thing. I would say it's a small step, but it's a giant leap for humankind. <coughs> but why does this happen during Kiddush Lavana? Because in Kiddush Lavana, we recognize Hashem as being behind all these cycles. That's why Kiddush Lavana is called greeting the divine presence. That's why it's done in Matzah Shabbos, when people are in their Shabbos clothes. When you greet the divine presence, so then you realize who really does run the world. That's when you can see the person next to you. As long as you feel that it's you that runs the world, there's no room for anyone else, not really, only to the extent that they can be of service to me or of use to me or, or such like. <coughs> but as soon as, you, as soon as you recognize that Hashem is the center and you take your place in orbit around Him, but there's room for many others also, the person to the right and to the left, it's a, there's enough for everyone. That's how these two things go together. When you greet the Divine Presence, you can say hello to the person next to you. And I would say further, and perhaps with this will, perhaps with this will conclude. <coughs> there is a, a practice. I call it a practice because I don't want to call it a halacha because there's some people that don't do it. I don't want to call it a minna because there's some people that do. I'm just going to call it a practice because it's a safe word. It's called my machroni. My macharonim before people bench, so they, so they wash. Okay, why? Well, I think the answer is well, no. There used to be something at the table <coughs> which was called melach sodomis. Melach sodomis was a very pungent salt from Sodom. If you've ever been to the Dead Sea and you felt that you had to open your eyes, you know, it's very pungent. And therefore, as much as, you, as much as it adds a lot to the taste of the food, you don't want it on your hands afterwards because if you touch your eyes, I don't want to bring back any uh, COVID, uh, whatever it is, but, but uh, it's not good. So wash your hands before you bench. That, I think, is, the, is well known. That's the reason for my machronim. Actually, it is one of two reasons for my machronim. It is the reason that the Gemara gives in Maseches Chulin. But elsewhere, the Gemara in Maseches Brachos says something else. It quotes the Pasuk, Make yourselves holy. You will be holy. And the Gemara says, that's washing before the meal and after the meal. Make yourselves holy, wash until the Shadam before the meal. You shall be holy, wash after the meal. Wow! These are two very different perspectives on the same thing. And they're not connected at all. They're not even in the same arena. 
The Gemara in one place says, why do Hashemayim Acharonim? Because the, the, the salt on your hand, it's toxic. The other Gemara says, why do Hashemayim Acharonim? You want to be holy. I mean, that's not the same. They're both good. They're both valuable things. They're not the same. You know, your whole perspective of Hashemayim Acharonim might depend entirely on when you join the Dafyomi cycle. You know, if, it's, if, it's, if it's before Cholin, it's all about the salt. If you start at the beginning, it's about being holy. But the Gemara says both of them. Says Rav Cook, yes, because they're both the same. One is, an, is an the, the problem and the other is the antidote. What do we know about Sodom? Sodom, they, they, they criminalized kindness. They glorified cruelty. Why? Because life was good in Sodom. It was very fertile. It was, they were very successful there. And life was so good that within the course of, over the course of time, life became about being good. And they became obsessed with their possessions and obsessed with their well-being. And there's no room for anyone else. And anyone who lets them in, it's a crime. And if you're cruel to them, you've done, you've done our kehila a service. That's where Sodom came from. But where do they go wrong? Should a person not enjoy life? Everyone needs to enjoy life. And salt represents just a bit of taste. If you ever want to know what the, the effect of salt, try something that normally has it without it. And then you'll know. You won't know what's happened. Even the, the very, very austere Torah diet of Pirkei Ovos, even that has salt in it. And it only has two other things, and they're bread and water. This is the way of Torah. Bread by itself? No, it can't be by itself. It's got to be with salt. Anything else? No. Can I drink anything? Water? Anything else? That's it. But, but at least some salt. Because salt is about enjoying life. You should enjoy life. But what if life becomes about enjoying life? Enjoying your possessions? That's overstepping. And what happens then? What's happened to your enjoyment? It becomes an obsession. What's happened to your salt? Your salt has become the salt of Sodom. And what does the salt of Sodom do? It blinds the eyes. You can't see anyone anymore. There's no one else. Melach Sodom is Mesames Hainayim. Once you buy in to Sodom's way of obsession with your things, you're blind to anyone else. And that's a problem. But if that's a problem... What's the solution? The solution, says Rav Cook, is the other Gemara. Be Sim Kadosha. Be holy. Be an elevated person. Be an idealistic person. The translation of Kadusha is holiness or sanctity, but the working definition of Kadusha is idealism and dedication. We say something is hektish, it's dedicated to a higher purpose. You should have higher ideals than just enjoying the things that you have. It doesn't mean you shouldn't enjoy them, but when you do, your eyes are opened. The salt of Sodom is the problem. The Yisim Kedoshim is the antidote. To have a more elevated view of life, which has been Adam Lamakom. And once again, it will spill over into your Ben Adam Lachaveru. We all know, I think we've all met both types. You can, have, you can have some people that they live in a mansion, 20 rooms, 24 rooms, it's just the two of them, and there's no room for you. Uh, we're sorry, and all the best, but. Because, because their life is the mansion. There's no room for anyone else. You'd think there's 23 rooms spare. No, there's no room spare. 
your spare. And the other people, they can live in a two-room place. And one room for them and the second room for you. Why? Because they're elevated people. They're idealistic people. <clears throat> or to put it slightly differently, what, what life tells us is that people's propensity to share of their resources, it's not a function of the size of the premises in which they live. It's a function of the quality of the premises upon which they live. Because if they have elevated ideals, bin adam la makam, a higher vision of life, there's room for everyone else. <coughs> so these, I think, are ideas, and I wouldn't say he gives one Krishna Shashafras, but uh, there's a flight waiting and they're not going to wait for me. Um, but I'm, I, I, I submit and suggest that these are ideas to, to reflect on. Hopefully, if we take them to heart, we will have a good three weeks and we will have a good nine days and have a good Tisha B'Av in the sense that we'll see how far we are from where we really need to be. And that's the first step in trying to close that gap. And in the when that happens, we'll be on the path towards the future redemption, which should come in Meher Abiyamin. Just wanted to say very quickly, thank you. Um, thank you to, to the host and Mohan family for hosting the Rav. It was a last minute uh, welcome addition to put Edgeware on the, on the schedule. And please God, this should be the first of, of many visits uh, to our holy Kahila in Edgeware, even bringing some Hendonites to the to the areas. You, you know you've done something right when that happens. Um, if you want any of the rough sparring, they're here today. Uh, we have them. You can get them either through me or just call someone that knows me or my wife, which is more likely. Um, and uh, you can get them. Other than that, so thank you. Okay. Very much. All the best.